This is Speaking Freely with the ACLU of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Hoover, your host and Director of Communications at the ACLU of PA. Happy 420 to all who celebrate. For our 420 episode this year, we get a view from a state that has legalized cannabis. So in this episode, you'll hear from Allison Holcomb, political director of the ACLU of Washington. In 2012, Allison was the campaign director of New Approach Washington, the successful effort to pass Initiative 502, which voters approved to end prohibition and legalize recreational cannabis in the state. Allison has also been called the co-architect of the initiative strategy as she was part of the team that hatched the idea. Allison talks about the successes of eight years of retail sales, how the policy has fallen short, and does a bit of myth-busting. Here in Pennsylvania, legalization is slowly but surely gaining bipartisan support, but still faces roadblocks in Harrisburg, where politicians continue to fearmonger about the issue. We're facing a lot of civil liberties challenges in our state and around the country right now, so I hope you'll enjoy this conversation about a civil liberties success story. Allison, thank you so much for taking the time. Welcome to Speaking Freely. Thank you so much for having me, Andy. So uh, for 420 this year, we want to talk. The reason why I had you on is because we want to talk with um, someone who has the experience of being in a state where there is legalization. Um, We've in the past on this podcast for 420, we've talked with local activists, talked with uh, the state of things in Pennsylvania. But I'm really curious to hear about what the experience has been like the last eight years uh, with legalization in Washington. So the state voters approved a ballot initiative to legalize adult use of marijuana in 2012. Retail sales started in July of 2014. You're eight years in. Uh, What has gone well? What have been the benefits of legalization? I think the most important thing that's gone well in Washington is we've stopped treating adult cannabis use as a crime. Uh, I think you and I both know that the war on drugs and cannabis prohibition are effective primarily at maintaining white supremacy. Uh, Drug law enforcement, to me, is the most perfect example of racism in the criminal legal system because people use drugs at roughly equal rates across all races. But we see that drug laws are enforced disproportionately against black and brown people and especially against black people. And I think Michelle Alexander documented this fairly masterfully in her uh, 2010 book, The New Jim Crow. So treating cannabis use as a crime and selectively enforcing that crime against black and brown people allowed racial discrimination to remain legal in the wake of the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So that while employers could no longer discriminate against a person on the basis of the color of their skin, they were perfectly within their rights to deny them job opportunities, um, bank loans, uh, financial aid for college on the basis of a criminal record. So then when Nixon declared the war on drugs in 1971 and Reagan escalated in the 1980s on top of the industrialization that was happening in our urban cores, Um, We saw the ravaging of brown and black and working class families across the country, um, which ensured that they would stay in their lower castes and that their constitutional rights, even as as Congress recognized them, would still carry a pretty heavy, hefty asterisk. So for me, legalizing cannabis has always been about 
reducing the impact of the war on drugs and mass incarceration. And I think that Initiative 502 and the creation of a legal and regulated marketplace helped slow the role of mass incarceration. Certainly didn't stop it. We have a long way to go. But it started turning the tide on the war on drugs and demonstrating we could take a new approach. And I think that creation of the regulated supply side is a second key success of cannabis legalization because it does demonstrate that we can do something differently. And by replacing arrest, incarceration, and criminal records with a public health approach to cannabis use and substance use disorder, we're increasing safety for consumers. Um, and we're also generating significant new revenues for underfunded public health services, which is something I think that has become um, a very acute issue many of us are aware of in the wake of the pandemic. So I-502, Washington's initiative, um, did a few things on that front in addition to requiring testing for pesticides and testing for cannabinoid profiles and publishing that information for consumers. It also generated in the last fiscal year, $559.5 million in new wow. taxes. Yeah, and the initiative dedicated most of those to healthcare, public health education and prevention and research. Um, and then finally, I know I'm going on, but finally, That's I okay. think what was really important to me about I-502 was that it served um, a, a key purpose to me in being both a national and a global domino. So today we have 18 states, two U.S. territories, uh, the District of Columbia, six different countries, and the Australian Capital Territory um, that have all legalized cannabis since I-502 passed. So um, not only did the initiative have a significant impact on the U.S. war on drugs, but also on the global drug war. Well, keeping thousands of people out of the criminal legal system is huge. And I do want to ask you a little bit about the interactions with the criminal legal system. But before we go there, so you mentioned the fact that, you know, Washington and Colorado did this first, did it the same year in 2012. Um, what has not gone so well? What do you think uh, could be improved? What can other states learn from Washington? I think the biggest challenge that we hit and what we're still struggling to overcome is the failure to create an equitable cannabis marketplace. Um, you know, the black and brown communities who were disproportionately harmed by cannabis prohibition should be benefiting disproportionately from cannabis legalization. Um, and we've not been able to do that. Um, I, I think that's due in part to the ongoing federal prohibition of cannabis, which means that Small business owners can't get your standard small business loan from a bank or a credit union. Um, and we also have the reality of generations of wealth disparities between white people and brown and black people in this country. So there just simply isn't as much capital available in the families and the communities of those that were hit hardest by the war on drugs. And so that's the piece I think that we still need to work on and what I hope that other states will um, demonstrate creativity and ingenuity in accomplishing. There is a lot of tension in cannabis reform circles, particularly between like the advocates and activists and the politicians around like the corporate influence and the ability to have um, micro businesses, uh, micro retailers 
And it sounds like you're saying that that really hasn't worked out, particularly as it relates to black and brown communities. Is there, is there, is it, is it a situation where the larger corporations are kind of dominating the market? Is there opportunities for small business owners? Well, here in Washington with initiative 502, we, um, followed the example of the Tide House rules in alcohol um, and actually established Initiative 502 to prohibit vertical integration from the producer all the way to the retailer in large part to try to prevent industry capture by a few large corporations. Um, And that's worked somewhat. What we found though, is that really the retailers um, exert most of the power and the influence in our marketplace and producers um, and processors are are basically required to take whatever deals the retailers want to offer. And that again is part of the ongoing federal prohibition because we have an artificially capped ceiling on how many people can enter the marketplace and how many people can compete for contracts with different retail shops, et cetera. There are only so many retailers um, that are licensed under the state law, then there aren't that many places that producers and processors can take their product and they certainly can't ship it across state lines in the current environment. So that artificial um, construct to the marketplace is, is a big challenge. A second, big challenge is the um, extraordinary regulatory environment that new businesses enter into, the 24-hour surveillance cameras and all of the security systems that are required in order to be licensed. Um, It's just a much more expensive business to get into. And that ties back again to lack of availability of capital for a lot of of small business owners. What I will say though is, is recently we've seen Um, uh, especially some licensees in the producer space who have been advocating with lawmakers for the creation of new types of licenses, like a craft license, where you could operate somewhat like a, a, a winery with a tasting room, and you could have a small producer farm, um, an on-site uh, shop, and be able to have that small business that wouldn't be as expensive as having a, a large business that's delivering to the retail stores in Seattle, for example. Right. So I have hopes that that'll, yeah, that that'll come around, but it is going to require removing some of these artificial constraints in the marketplace that make it really difficult for anybody to get into business, but especially those that aren't well capitalized to begin with. I do want to come back to the criminal legal issues. So a person can still be arrested for marijuana related offenses in Washington. Those include consuming cannabis in public and exceeding the maximum quantities for possession. And as you've referenced, you know, here at the ACLU, we want both to reduce the number of people impacted by the criminal legal system and an end to the racial disparities that infect all parts of that system. So what kind of trends has Washington seen in arrest rates since legalization? It's a great question. And I, and I want to confess that in addition to those crimes that you identified, there's also being under 21 and being mm-hmm. in possession and how sort of backwards that is, that young people are at greater risk of winding up with a criminal record than adults. Um, None of us is encouraging young people to use intoxicating substances, but they're going to. 
And why should they be facing criminal penalties when their parents and aunts and uncles don't? Um, so I hope that that is something that we can change before too long. In terms of the trends, you know, when Initiative 502 passed in 2012, even before its official effective date, uh, marijuana arrests plummeted. So from 2009, roughly, up until passage, there were thousands, anywhere from 9,000 arrests and referrals uh, to just under 6,000 each year. Um, and immediately following passage in 2013, um, statewide arrests dropped to 120. Wow. What didn't? Yeah. Yeah. Sounds good. <laughs> and it is. And I don't mean to minimize that at all. Um, but Just to give you some um, perspective, I know I realize yeah. population is much larger, but annually here in PA, even with Philadelphia having decriminalization, we're, we hover every year around 20,000 arrests, possession arrests. Yeah. And it's, you know, even the arrest records are problematic in and of themselves, right? You don't even have to get the conviction. Just the fact yeah. that you were arrested and the case was referred to a court. In this, this day and age of private data collection, it's easy for anybody to see that you've gotten caught up in the criminal legal system, even if your case didn't resolve in a conviction. So um, yeah, that is, that is very serious. And I'm sorry uh, for the people of Pennsylvania still dealing with that. Um, I think sometimes we minimize, we just don't realize how significant those impacts are um, and how much long-term damage it does to an individual and um, how it ripples out to that individual's family and community. Um, so I hope, I hope that turns around for Pennsylvania. Um, I will say that, you know, here in Washington, even with those low numbers, um, which I'm really happy about, but they are still racially disparate, right? We mm -hmm. still see the same patterns of um, who is getting arrested and cited for this offense and who's not. Um, so that's yet something that we need to work on as well. But it is it is good to know that at least it's on a much smaller, smaller number of people. So another part of uh, another piece of this that's related to the criminal legal system is what happens to people who have criminal records for past behavior that is now legal um, without expungement and pardons opportunities, a record and you mentioned this, a record can continue to follow someone around and it impacts their daily life. Um, in some states, people with records can be shut out of the new cannabis market. How has that been addressed in Washington? Have there been opportunities for expungement and pardons? There have. So Seattle, the city of Seattle was the first to move toward um, going back through their records and vacating, getting a court order essentially to vacate past misdemeanor convictions for marijuana possession. And then um, Governor Inslee set up a statewide process for asking for pardons for past marijuana convictions and vacation of convictions. Um, so that has been happening. And then we just had in, in Washington state a very um, unusual state Supreme Court ruling in um, February of last year in the case of State v. Blake, um, our Supreme Court found that Washington's possession statute was actually unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. And that was because we were an outlier. Our possession law did not include a mens rea element. It didn't require a guilty mind. You didn't have to know that you were in possession. You didn't have to intend to be in possession of any drug. 
And uh, because that was found to be unconstitutional, essentially voided out all of the previous convictions. So um, that's sort of that's going to apply to every um, illegally possessed substance, and so will have an impact on those misdemeanor convictions. But building into a marijuana legalization statute an automated process for addressing those past convictions is something I would highly recommend because even under the Washington state law, the ability to have that conviction taken off your record still required some sort of proactive action on the part of the individual. For an individual who no longer lives in Washington, that becomes a bit of a challenge, but it's a challenge for anybody who, um, there's no legal right to counsel to vacate your record. So you're having to figure out how to do this all on your own. Um, assuming that you don't have uh, the financial resources to spend on an attorney to do it for you, and nor should anybody have to do that, right? So I really do encourage other states that are looking at that to figure out how they can best automate the system for correcting the record for people who have um, old misdemeanor, excuse me, old marijuana convictions. Another sticking point in states, and it's been another point of tension between uh, cannabis advocates and, and politicians has been around home grow. And my understanding is that home grow is allowed in Washington, but in limited circumstances and with quite a few conditions. What are the limits on home grow? And is there a push for expanding that? How would you advise other states on this issue? Yes, um, home grow is still, unfortunately, I think. Uh, Probably for me personally, one of the most frustrating aspects of the Washington state law um, in that the legislature has not uh, corrected this and allowed home grow for all adults. I believe that we're still the only state that doesn't allow home grow for adults um, for non-medical purposes. Our law allows home grow for medical purposes. Mm -hmm. And um, an individual has to be a registered medical marijuana patient. So you have to provide information to the state about sensitive medical um, details about your life. And so um, this is something that I've written to legislative committees about in the past. Um, and would really encourage them to take seriously the fact that under our law, it's still a felony. And um, that is completely inconsistent with the spirit of Initiative 502 and something that needs to be addressed. My hope is that the delay is not due to concerns about protecting the tax revenue from the, the regulated marketplace. I think that would be very cynical uh, to maintain a felony criminal penalty in place for adults who wish to grow their own uh, cannabis when they can brew their own beer. Um, yeah. But we'll see what happens. Yeah. I've brewed cider at home. It would seem like if you were in a legalization state, it would be what's what's the problem with growing a few plants, you know? <laughs> um, all right. So here's the question I hope any legislator or legislative staffer that hears this, uh, that is listening to this, hears uh, this next question. We've we've had several legislative hearings on legalization over the last two months. We're actually slowly but surely getting some bipartisan support um, in a state where the Republicans control the legislature. Because of these hearings, and actually in part because of the support that's been building, that has led to some opponents pushing myths about legalization. So I'd like you to do some myth busting. What are the most common misconceptions about legalization that have been proven false by the experience in Washington? 
Well, the most common misconception is that youth use will increase if we legalize cannabis. Here in Washington, our Office of the Superintendent of Public Instruction, the Department of Health, the Healthcare Authorities Division of Behavioral Health and Recovery, and the Liquor and Cannabis Board all collaborate on a biennial survey of students in grades six, eight, 10, and 12 regarding their attitudes about uh, mental health, substance use, safety and violence, and related risk and protective factors. And before I-502's passage, the funding for this survey was actually, it had to be cobbled together out of every state budget cycle. But uh, with Initiative 502, we specifically dedicated cannabis tax revenues to ensure that there was a steady source of funding for this because we wanted to make sure we were monitoring what is happening with youth and how is uh, legalization of cannabis impacting our youth. And so according to our most recent data, which we just got for 2021, um, current cannabis use, which is defined as cannabis use that's occurred in the previous 30 days, has either remained steady or slightly dropped across all four grades since 2010. So since before, wow. two years before I-502's passage, it's gone down. And when I think about this, I'm reminded of um, a conversation I had with King County Prosecuting Attorney Dan Satterberg back when he was considering whether or not he should endorse Initiative 502 during the campaign. And he told me that he was having a conversation with his son, his teenage son, about um, his concerns about what would happen with youth use. And he shared that his son looked at him and said, Dad, if you legalize cannabis, the only people who are going to start smoking more are people like you, because every teenager who wants to smoke weed right now is smoking weed. So, you know, <laughs> I laughed, um, it, but I do want to say that we took that very seriously and we did want to have some bumpers and we wanted to monitor what was happening. And we're really, really pleased to see that um, youth use has not um, suffered, has not increased um, has actually decreased a little bit. There is one other um, major concern that we hear a lot about and that's impaired driving. And I can't say that it stayed the same or gone down. What I can say and what I really appreciate about um, Washington's traffic safety um, researchers is that what they understand is it's very complicated to explain what's happening, but the greatest risk is polysubstance use and significantly it's alcohol combined with cannabis in driving that appears to amplify the, the effects of each. Um, so really we do have to address that. And we, with Initiative 502, um, there was um, some money that was spent by the Liquor and Cannabis, cannabis Board in the early days to do um, public service advertising and billboards around the impacts of cannabis on driving, but I think we could do more. And I actually have a lot of faith in our ability to turn um, the tide culturally and socially by providing accurate scientific um, information about the impacts of cannabis and alcohol when combined. And the social pressure can work in this area and that we can um, keep those um, rates of 
uh, impaired driving that results in crashes um, down and maybe even um, start to decrease them. Yeah, those are two that we hear. Um, so I'm glad you mentioned them both. Um, and on the on the driving issue, unfortunately, here in Pennsylvania, we have a zero tolerance DUI law. And with medical marijuana, um, hundreds of thousands of patients who effectively are DUI all the time uh, because the metabolites are in their system. Yeah, and that that was a, a real sticking point during the campaign as well. At the time, this is going back to 2011 when we were drafting the measure. We looked at what um, research was available at the time and decided that because we knew that we needed to address this concern with voters, that we would include a per se standard of uh, five nanograms of active THC, not the um, uh, carboxy THC, the metabolite. But that for, for medical patients, that's quite low. And if it's a medical patient who's not also drinking alcohol, it's likely entirely inappropriate. So this is an area where we're still having to do research and do work. Um, so yeah, the, the zero tolerance um, is, a real, is a real problem. So as I said, it's been eight years since retail sales started. Um, this will be the, your, your closing argument here for people in Pennsylvania that are hearing this. Knowing what you know now after eight years, um, how would you advise other states that are looking at what, what, would, what would your advice be to other states that are looking to uh, legalize recreational cannabis? My advice would be to not give in to fear, not to give in to fear of the unknown. Um, that's really what we were facing in 2011 because there was no jurisdiction in the world who had done um, what Initiative 502 intended to do. So when we and Colorado got together, what was nice about going at the same time is we both had different approaches to what the policy should look like. So we created a nice experiment for the rest of the country and the rest of the world to observe. So you don't need to fear the unknown because we know so much more now, 10 years later. So look at what we've done and learn from what our data um, has produced. In your tax policy, dedicate money to funding research and science-based public health education. Treat young people with respect. Treat them as though they are intelligent because they are and give them truth not hyperbole, but fund the research. There is not enough funded research on cannabis. And create an economic plan that addresses some of what we've been talking about, the generational wealth disparities that are going to mean that the, the legalization of cannabis is not going to land fairly across families and communities. And we need to be proactive in creating fairness in a place that has been racially unfair for generations. We want to give those who've been most impacted by the harms of cannabis prohibition an equitable opportunity to benefit from its legalization. Um, and we can, that would be my advice. Well, Allison, thanks so much. This We've had this podcast for four years. This is the 72nd episode. And if my memory serves me correctly, you're the first of state affiliate staff from another affiliate to be on as a guest. So I really appreciate your time. You know, they say the states are the laboratories, right? And clearly Washington has been that uh, when it comes to cannabis. Well, thank you so much for the honor. It's been an absolute pleasure. I really appreciate the chance to talk with you, Andy. 
That's Allison Holcomb, political director of the ACLU of Washington. Thanks again to Allison for her insights and time. And shout out to all of our colleagues at the Washington Affiliate for all of their tremendous work. I also want to know that there is legislation in the PA General Assembly to narrow the Commonwealth's DUI law to require proof of impairment for medical marijuana patients to be charged with the offense. Senate Bill 167 has been introduced by Senator Cameron Bartolotta, a Republican from Washington County. County, while Representatives Chris Rabb, a Democrat from Philadelphia, and Todd Polinchak, a Republican from Bucks County, have introduced an identical bill, House Bill 900, in the state house. We encourage you to reach out to your state senator and state representative to ask them to support those bills. Links to the legislation and the legislature's homepage are available in the show notes. That brings episode 72 to a close. The audio editor of Speaking Freely is Freddie Foulet, and our music is from bensound.com. The executive director of the ACLU of Pennsylvania is Reggie Shuford. I'm Andy Hoover, the host, writer, and director of this podcast. Until next time, be healthy and be free.